Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In this episode, we speak with Rachel Hutchison, a social impact executive with over three decades of experience working at the intersection of business, society, and the nonprofit sector. Rachel is former leader of the global social responsibility effort at BlackBot, a 3,300-person publicly traded cloud software company serving tens of thousands of not-for-profit organizations around the world. During her tenure at BlackBot, Rachel built the company's give-back function from the ground up, relying on her expertise in ESG sustainability, strategic communications, corporate philanthropy, and building programs that drive social impact while engaging employees, customers, and the community. Rachel is also a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion, women's leadership, and investing in future generations. She currently serves on the board of various organizations, including the Giving Institute, Common Impact, and Athletes Voices. We begin our conversation talking about her earliest recollections as a world traveler at the age of five. How did that happen? So my uh, father was a college professor, uh, a professor of English at a college called Washington and Jefferson in Western Pennsylvania, about 35 miles Southwest of Pittsburgh. And when I was four going on five, um, he had a sabbatical. And so he decided to go to Cambridge and to study and, and research and work. He, um, had written his PhD on Chaucer and, you know, all these great libraries at Cambridge. And, and so I have two older sisters and, uh, he, I think the per- they sat us down and asked us if we would, would wanted to go to England. And we were like, absolutely, let's go overseas. And so, um, we, we moved the, they moved the family for a year and we lived in at 35 Mulberry close, which is right off of the Milton road up from, if you know, Cambridge at all. And, um, and I lived there for a year. I went to the Milton Road Infant School, which was a full day of kindergarten, which in the U.S., the U.S. was doing a half day at that point. So I actually learned how to read and write and do math and ride a bike and all these, the, the academic things were actually, I don't think I was supposed to learn those until I was in first grade in the U.S. So, but um, learned on Ladybird books instead of the uh, Dick and Jane series. I think it was Peter and Sally in the Ladybird books, but and then traveled a lot. You know, we went to school and and then we traveled all over Europe um, in our car. And my parents slept in a pup tent and my sisters and I slept in the car and we traveled lots. I don't remember how many countries, but it was a lot all over the place. We went to Ireland and we went to Scotland and, you know, went to Northern Europe and all sorts of different places and slept in campsites. And at that point, Europe was very and very different countries were so much more distinct than they are today you know so all the money was different and that was something that was very interesting to me you know what does the money look like what language did they speak here and the food was culturally very specific and also you know this is pre-european union so the accessibility of products was different so you 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 very much ate local really local when you were in certain places and there were a lot of things my mother could get in in england and so we were eating a very old standard english diet um the food in london has improved dramatically i have to say um 
so, but that was a really formative year. I mean, I, I didn't, I was really young and I got to see that there's this big world out there, you know, and it wasn't, you know, seeing landmarks, although, you know, I saw the Mona Lisa, I saw, you know, wonderful things. They were just, you know, me being five and taking in the world, went to a lot of art galleries. My parents were very into art, uh, which wasn't always my favorite thing to do when I was five, but a lot of castles, a lot of history, just, you know, Europe and, and England and you know, such old, old, incredible history that was just a part of life. I have to, I have to ask you if this is all things that you remember or if language helps you to remember, like the stories that you tell your siblings and that your father has told you, because being five and making a decision to go to England, <laughs> that kind of agency well, is pretty I remarkable, remember, but then the rest too. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And language and storytelling are a huge part of my family and my, my life. Um, being the, my grandfather was a college professor, although he taught geology, but I come from a long line of professors. My sister's a college professor and now college president. My husband's a college professor. So there's all of this, a lot of it in English. And so a lot of it about language and, and the power of language and storytelling. I don't remember the actual conversation of being asked about going to England. I've been told that story, but I remember, you know, being, at JFK, going to the airport, I remember, um, you know, being coming to our house for the first time. I remember 35 Mulberry Close in the neighborhood we lived in. I remember my teacher, my school. And of course, that's been reinforced by storytelling. And my mother took at that point, it was always slides. You know, she had a 35 millimeter camera and she, you know, she took lots of slides. And so certainly there were, were things that were reinforced over time, but I do remember that year. My young life was really divided as pre and post England. When I, before England, I remember certain things, but I was young. And then when I went to England, when I came back, you know, I was reading, writing, you know, doing math, riding a bike, you know, I'd been all these different places. We sailed home on um, a ocean liner called the France which I think became the SS Norway. It was recommissioned. And so it was the second largest ocean liner, I think, to the Queen Mary. And we, we left from Bremerhaven in Germany. We, had, we got out of school a little bit early in, in England and drove all over Europe for weeks and camped in different places and, and saw all sorts of wonderful things and went to Legoland right before we got on the original Legoland in, in, in Copenhagen. And which at that point, it was just mini land. If you've ever been to Legoland, there are all these rides and everything now, but it was just the, like the Kennedy airport in Legos, you know, just mini land. It was amazing. And we, my mother actually bought us a set of Legos that we were not allowed to open until we got onto the boat. And we got onto this, this incredible ship and basically, I don't want to say ran wild, but my sisters and I had a great time and my parents had a great time because where could you go? You were on a ship. <laughs> um, we had this great adventure, seven days, and we sailed into New York Harbor, um, coming back after being gone for about 14 months. And my mother woke us up so that we could see the Statue of Liberty and I remember sitting, you know, in, in we get off the boat and we were sitting and waiting for our car to be taken off the, um, we always called it a Renault, 
and now they're Renaults, but yeah. we had a Renault with the U.S. driver's side when we were in England and we were waiting. I remember seeing it like being taken by the crane and lifted off the ship. So um, it's just a very distinct set of memories. But again, storytelling, language um, has always played a huge part of my life. I'm trying to imagine sitting with a, uh, a really curious, literate family on the trip there while in England and then coming back. And I'm hearing Chaucer in my ears as you talk about this. Was there a lot of reading in your house and, and just recitation? Because I mean, I'm, you know, I'm already thinking about the first 50 lines of, of <laughs> Chaucer as you talk about this. What, yeah, okay, so, yeah, so my father, um, you know, he's an English, he is an English professor, he's a retired English professor, but he also, um, you know, you might imagine someone very buttoned up and scholarly with little glasses. My father's, you know, could easily be, be um, confused for a football coach and, you know, oh. uh, very just gregarious and open and, and did a lot of reading. And so I, you know, he, we would walk through the grocery store or the mall when we were kids and he would embarrass the heck out of us by like speaking and, and old English or middling, you know, the old <laughs> using, you know, reading, <laughs> reciting parts of Chaucer in, right. yeah. You can imagine how wonderful that was when I was like 12. But um, yeah, absolutely. I have incredible memories of two that stick in my mind. One is my father often would, um, I remember this at least once, but I think he did it more than once. Uh, at the college where he spoke, he was asked to go to the Fiji house um for their christmas party and he read aloud a child's christmas in wales and so i always you know was around that kind of you know we went to a lot of theater i knew a lot of the people from the faculty and the students who were in the productions and so we were watching you know things like guess who's coming to dinner and all sorts of you know old classic plays but very much language and performance and the second memory i have is is of course you know record players or the uh, big deal growing up. I remember the actual moment my mother kind of introduced me to the concept of a record. So my dad used to, with another colleague, show movies at the college on Friday nights. And so we would sit in this old lecture hall. And actually, I don't know if you know this, but W&J is where the um, TV series, The Chair, was filmed, the Netflix series oh, with Sandra Oh. And so there are a couple of rooms that are used in that um, that I've, I've spent a lot of time in. So we go to this old um, lecture hall and they would show movies and, and one of, they would show Charlie Chaplin and all sorts of different stuff. And, and we went and we saw a, a Beatles double feature. So it was like um, a hard day's oh, night, a hard day's night yeah. and help. Right. And I loved the music. I must've been like, I don't know, seven or eight. I loved the music. And so here I am with all the other faculty brats, which is what they call us. And the next day, my mother said, we love that music. Here's the music. And my parents, of course, had all the original Beatles albums, which I now have. And of course, they're hor in horrible shape because I wore them out listening to them over and over. And so my mother puts on the record and I'm like, oh, my God. But you have the music as possible. So I remember that 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 moment. My dad had a big record collection and and speaking about spoken word, my sister used to put records of poets and writers, you know, on the record player. Oh, 
Oh, and like Dylan Thomas reciting and things yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. And yes. But, you know, we each had jobs we had to do, you know, to help when we were growing up. And, and I had to clean the front hall. And I think she had to clean the living room like every week. So she'd put this stuff on and she'd listen to it. And I have snatches of, you know, little snippets of, of text in my head, like um, a patient lying etherized upon a table, like is stuck in my head yes. because yes. she was listening to you know, I got a lot of T.S. Eliot in there, you know, <laughs> because Susie listened to this stuff. Now, my sister grew up to be a poet and a college professor and et cetera. But but and, language, yeah. language does matter, you know, that not just the choice of words, but the the pacing and the, the emphasis. And yeah, so huge part of my family and my growing up. And I think, frankly, a huge part of my career, too. Yes, that's that's where I was headed. I wanted to ask you about the connection between that and and what you ended up doing. But there there's there's still a lot of years in between, and you did go to Dickinson, as you said, yep. um, which uh, you know you're not alone in the family to have done that. So and you studied literature there, right? I mean, you studied English, I did. English, yeah. Uh, and then you also went back to London and you studied there. So there's there's that through line and studied journalism um, for your masters. Yep. You, you were drawn to that. Some people, when they grow up in an environment like that, they run away from it. And other people, they just, they stay with it. And you kind of brought those worlds together in a way, it looks like, because by going into this world of corporate communications and philanthropy and all the things we'll talk about, that's a way of utilizing, as you said, stories and mm -hmm. engaging with people and using the words that matter to help bring people mm -hmm. together. But, um, but when you were making that journey and figuring out what to do, I can't imagine when you were seven, you thought, I'm going to go into corporate philanthropy because you probably didn't even know that word. No. So no. what you, you, how did you end up deciding to go towards English and then at some point deciding, well, you weren't going to go the, let's say the academic route. Yeah, I am relatively unusual as is, I have a, a sister who's an expert in nuclear energy and, energy business and government work as well, but also does a lot of writing um, and analysis. And so I definitely kind of almost went the family route in terms of education, you know, given that I was surrounded by many people who, um, you know, there were books all over our house. I mean, I knew books, what books they wrote just by their spines. I mean, you know, Leaves of Grass was always here. And I didn't know who Nabokov was, but I knew that there was a book at the top of the stairs that was, you know, like I was just always around books. Um, but I liked to write when I was young and I liked to write stories. And, and I think I was in about seventh grade when my parents said that my allowance, whatever that was, you know, like a dollar, three dollars a week, whether was based on me writing. And so I used to sit down with the, the old manual typewriter and bang out these stories that I would just make up. And, you know, I just enjoyed that. I, I just enjoyed, you know, creating things. And, and over time, I realized that I wasn't as good in creating fiction-based stories as I was at writing about personal experience, you know, writing, you know, things that were more reflections, almost like my own personal editorials. But writing was definitely encouraged. And I actually credit my father, which really was really teaching me 
the the tools and and things I needed to know about how to write well. Like I would write something and then he would read it. And I remember him telling me, and I must have been in about seventh or eighth grade, that it was important to vary sentence length. That you know that it created a different flow. I I remember my mother telling me, no, it's not this phrase; it's that phrase. You're you're misusing this word, or you're you know, when you talk about malapropisms or things that are commonly misunderstood. And so I always was very much a writer. And, and when I went to college, I think I just picked what I was familiar with and what I enjoyed the most. I was, yeah, I wasn't bad at math. I wasn't bad at science. I just, I, I think there was something about storytelling and I actually had a, a I was in freshman comp and, you know, it's the standard exercises like, remembering places, remembering events, remembering people. And I wrote a couple of things in that freshman comp class that, that I, re- I remember I kept all of that, um, but they were incredible memories of things from my childhood or people that I knew. And I loved doing that. And so choosing to be an English major was, I think more about the fact that I loved comp and I loved writing versus that I love studying literature and literature is interesting. And you learn about language and flow and had a great professor, my um, sophomore year who, you know, was helping us deconstruct, you know, you know, sonnets and, and the stories that are behind the actual language, you know, not just, you know, you could read it yourself in your homework, but then when you went to class, the professor would actually kind of unpack this, this thing. And you're like, Oh my goodness, there's so much more here than I thought was here. But my favorite courses, I think, were advanced comp when I was a senior, where the assignments were things like write two pages. It can, you can write anything, but it has to be funny. And you have to use malapropisms and cliches and whatever, and that's the assignment. Or write um, two pages about a highly emotional issue in a completely unemotional way, and then flip that. The next week, you're writing about something that's that's unemotional but you're making it emotional and the whole idea of how you can massage language how you can use language and I absolutely loved that that class I also loved my American studies classes and and if I American studies was still relatively new I don't think it was a major yet um when I graduated from school in the college in the late 80s and but I took a couple of American studies classes and and I loved it and I had one I think it was my senior year that it was an English and American studies class. And every week you wrote a paper, but the, you wrote a paper analyzing like an ad in a, in a popular magazine. And you had to put it into talk about the cultural context, you wrote a paper about um, a tradition or a holiday. You, you know, wrote about music. Right? So I wrote a paper about Sinead O'Connor. I wrote a, a paper about the Cowgirls, which was this women's drinking club that a friend of mine was in at the <laughs> University of Texas, where the women acted like men as at a part of their. And what did that say about society? And I loved that. So that that that's what got me to to journalism school and and really. Um, I worked at the alumni publications office at Dickinson when I was in school and had a wonderful mentor and boss there, Nancy Winkleman, who was an early, early um, female reporter in Baltimore early in her career. And she kind of helped me head in a way where writing was a part of 
my professional abilities, but it wasn't as academic. And that's kind of where I made the shift into something less academic. But what at Missouri, what was so interesting about Missouri's journalism program is they required you to have a full slate of, of course, courses that you had done. I actually had to take econ and mm. I think sociology before I went there because they, they required like the whole liberal arts background. You had to have language to a certain level. You had to have math, you had to have science, you had to have everything because their philosophy was that you had to have something in your head to write about. And I did a lot of art history and music and all of that. And other programs are kind of nine months. You're already a working professional journalist and you run through them. But I went to the two-year kind of full master's, mm-hmm. which was right for me. And That's then I graduated at a time when you couldn't get a job in media. So, Well, y- yes, I did want to ask you how you, why you didn't go uh, into, uh, I don't know, uh, writing obits or... Other oh, pieces I did that. that a lot of people do in J, you know, right out of J school. But um, but it's interesting when you say that uh, the having that broad spectrum of education uh, was important to that program. It also sounds important not just to being able to write about things, but being able to listen to people and understand the uh, both the value of what they're saying, the context for it, and be able to distinguish between what's real and what's not, which is so important in journalism. And so if you'd studied all these different things, at least you have a basis for for listening to things uh, with some some degree of uh, understanding and objectivity. Well, you, it just gives you context. It helps you understand that there's this huge world out there and they, there's so much that you don't know and there's so much to learn and there are nuances to everything and communities are different and languages are different and food is different in different places. And if you've never really gone anywhere or whether yourself gone somewhere or gone through literature somewhere or through art, how do you kind of know that, that there are these, there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that isn't where people have asked me, you know, my kids used to say, well, how would you study to do what you do for work? Cause I didn't know that I would end up in global social responsibility and ESG and strategic communications. I didn't know that I would do that. I thought I would end up in the the nonprofit side, like what you would then call publications. That's what I thought I would do. Again, graduated from grad school at a really bad time for the media. And in grad school, I'd learned that I was really interested in magazine publishing, not just I was very good at editing. I could write, but I knew I wasn't a creative writer. The people I was in school with were just brilliant in terms of being really creative writers. But I liked the whole, I liked putting it all together, which turned out to be project management and skills that transferred into my into my life. But my kids would say, well, how did you become what you are? And and what if I wanted to do that? I'd say, well, you know, go travel, go you know, which I did junior year in college and, and then I've continued to do um, throughout my life, eat different food, read books, you know, have things that you can find intersections with, with other people. And that will just give you a leaping off point to, to connect with them and to, you know, have some kind of commonality and to know more about the world. So, uh, I did end up in business, which seemed really odd. My mother used to ask me when I was going to leave and go get my PhD. And I was like, why would I get a PhD in journalism? Just because people in the family have PhDs does not mean I should get a PhD. And, you know, I found my way, but I always felt like I was a little different. I wasn't, you know, I came from an academic family. I was more often like 
the customers and organizations we were serving than I, I hadn't intended to end up in business. But I think there's a real um, need, a growing need to understand community, storytelling. Um, it's not just the work of the business that matters. It's that whole cultural context. And businesses don't necessarily tell that story well. I mean, we hear all the time about when they do, you know, web, and people might like a brand image like Coca-Cola, or they may not. But I think we can agree that those companies tell their stories well for their markets. And that's the reason, in part, that they're successful. But there are a lot of companies that kind of struggle with that. So you coming in to help a growing company uh, communicate, um, I'm sure was as important to uh, the customers and to you as it was to the company. I mean, when you started with BlackBot, it was only, what, 100 employees or something like that? Yeah, I think I was the 130th. It was small. We're small. And that yeah, was, was, I'm trying to remember when that was. Was that straight out of, almost straight out of your master's? It was, yeah, exactly. I'd got my master's degree. I'd moved to Charleston. I was looking for a job. Um, and I met the founder, Tony Bacher, who's English, um, playing soccer. He sponsored my team. And I'd played soccer in college, in high school, college, grad school. And um, I'm a huge fan today. But I met him and he got my resume and they hired me to do market research, which was interesting because that's kind of a technical area. But back then that was basically like being a journalist for the company, you know, finding things out. And we had dial up email. We didn't have a website yet. And I was, you know, on the phone and finding things out and learning about other markets or kites, types of nonprofits and who potentially could use our technology. And, you know, it does make sense now when I look back where I ended up, but you don't realize, you know, when you're growing up that the fact that your parents volunteer, uh, my parents had a garden in the back that, that they basically shared with other people. It was like a community garden in the seventies. And they were just doing that to, you know, help feed us. But that was actually something that just seemed normal. Um, you know, they volunteered, they served on boards and they donated to things. I always knew that my parents donated to their colleges and they donated to other things and they supported things and they were active. And I just, so I didn't really think about nonprofits as a market, but I knew that people volunteered. I knew that people gave. Mm -hmm. And when I came to Blackboard, I was like, oh my goodness, like there's this whole world out there of all of these organizations. I didn't realize how vast and how different the segments are because it, to me, it's very highly fragmented. It's not just one big market. Um, and, you know, I learned a ton about by doing research I, in one of my things I got to do, which was really wonderful, is go to Australia um, a couple of times in the 90s to basically I was sent on this mission to go figure out how do they raise money in, in Australia? What's the market like? Um, should we open an office there? What technology is there. And I, I went a couple of times. We opened an office in the late 90s. Um, to serve organizations in Australia, New Zealand, Asia, largely English speaking. But that was fascinating. It was just like, go figure it out. Um, it's a wonderful memory. So that's that's the market research role that I guess you yeah. originally, originally discovered. And how did that transition then into this world that You've defined it a whole bunch of different ways, probably because the evolution has been complex, but from yeah. 
uh, corporate giving to corporate social responsibility to all the all these other things, which I'm sure you can describe for us. Yeah, so I think, I mean, even though my title was market research analyst when I was first hired, a lot of that was predicated on the fact that I could communicate what I figured out and I could, you know, help other people understand by condensing things. It's amazing how easy Twitter is when you've been taught how to write headlines. Like, so, you know, you're, there are things that you, you learn. <coughs> Journalism school taught me to write in plain English versus academic English, um, which is really important. You get more focused on audience who, who's actually going to consume and read what you're, you know, you're putting out versus, versus something academic that someone else probably isn't going to read. Um, so, you know, I went on this journey that always had something to do with um, understanding and condensing and conveying messages. But, you know, I just got involved in a lot of different things. I, I worked in acquisitions for a while. We, we acquired a lot of companies in the phase in the 90s when companies were having a hard time moving from DOS to Windows. And in that work, I was actually doing project management, but I was also the one who was writing the messages of how do we tell the employees of this company? How do we tell our employees? How do we tell the the customers of this company? How do we tell our customers? Like a lot of it was all these different kinds of the nine different messaging pieces, um, which then becomes corporate comms. I started our PR. Um, uh, we went public and I worked on, well, I worked on the, actually the, the project where we got an outside investment from a, a, a private equity firm. And I actually helped build that deck. And so it was storytelling, but learning how to do storytelling through creating, you know, PowerPoint slides and what's the story of the company and stories have arcs. And then what's the story when we were going public and I supported a, our then VP of marketing on, on that. And as we went public, we were like, well, we need to do PR. So I am not a PR person, but I, started our PR program. I did media relations. I, I started doing a lot of relationship development. And that's not something that I thought I would want to do or thought I was good at. I actually taught myself um, kind of how to network. I would sit and watch people at church and say this, they're really good at like connecting with people. And like, oh, I should. And I worked for a wonderful person named John Thompson, who was wonderful at that. But I was like, you know, I want to do that. And, and when I was in college and I was going to grad school, my advisor wrote me this recommendation. And for some reason, he gave me a copy of it, which I thought was weird because normally they would mail them in. And it said, you know, highly recommend her, but I'm glad it's for print journalism because she wouldn't be good at broadcast. And that stuck with me until, oh, gosh. Yeah, why? What? Why? <laughs> I was better in what I wrote than what I said in class. I guess I wasn't, you know, I. I definitely was not fully evolved yet, but it stuck with me for a long time that I would not be good speaking in front of people. And eventually, as I was doing this work and I was writing and I was thinking, and I was ghostwriting things for the CEO and I was doing all this stuff, but I didn't have my own voice. I started saying, well, I need to write some of my own things and I need to start speaking. And I started speaking in the context of serving. So as I was doing this work at Blackboard and I was I eventually stuck up my hand when our after our founder had retired and we'd had some change. And I said, I really want to take on philanthropy as part of, I was doing corporate relations and communications and managing relationships. And, you know, we really need to upgrade how we give and evolve it for who we are today. And so that just became a part of what I did. And that put me out in the world more where I was on my feet and I was in front of people. And I was kind of applying the 
the lessons I learned in journalism school about speaking clear language and speaking in the way that people would just, I, I was, I think I'm, I'm more informal and people received that well. And so I learned what it was like to have an audience react to you and how wonderful that is for someone to feed back to you. And, you know, when you're on stage and you're nervous and you find the people in the audience who are nodding and connecting with you and you're going to speak to them and started realizing, wow, I, I kind of like that. I want to challenge myself more. So I had these different paths going on. And one was taking on philanthropy at Blackboard, updating it to who we were, realizing that it wasn't enough and we needed to adopt citizenship and CSR and scaling that to social responsibility and ESG. And that was like the practice and then the other part was the, you know, going from writing to speaking to having my own things that I was writing and speaking about and always, usually writing my own things. I think it's easier to remember when you've created it yourself and then performing it, challenging myself to go do a TEDx talk because I run a TEDx um, committee for speakers and selected speakers and coach speakers, but I hadn't done it myself yet. And I was like, I need to do that. And then I started realizing, well, I want to do more of that. And I like bringing the kind of authentic human voice to a brand because you mentioned brand before, but when I started at work, people didn't talk about brands. People didn't talk about personal brands at all, but starting to realize like you have this brand and it has these values and how do you connect with it and emote with it? That's really what's happened in our working lives. Brands have these personalities and that it all just kind of wove together. I, I want to ask any you, sense at all to you. I mean, it it does, it but sense. I, I want to ask you about uh, part of that and how that transition was for you, because as you said, you were speaking for others. Well, first of all, you were conducting research yep. um, on the sector, and then you were speaking for others, as you said, rather than speaking for yourself. And you were also doing it through the pen and not the microphone. It's a very yep. different experience. So it is. I've had the opportunity to talk to you for a long time now in different ways. Um, and you have never been a shy person with me. Um, but I understand that making that transition from uh, paper to microphone to stage for some people is more challenging than for others because there, there are a couple of things. One is the level of exposure, especially when they are your own words, your own ideas. And then the other is, that exposure sometimes leads to criticism. And a lot of it can be quite unfair, or it's not directed at you, it's directed at the ideas that you seem to be representing as you speak about things. So how was it for you making the transition from a, a relatively protected world of words to increasingly not only speaking for others, but for yourself on a stage where probably people were taking pot shots at you, either because of who you worked for or what you were talking about <laughs> or just not getting it at all about philanthropy, frankly. Yeah. Um, it's something that evolved, you know, isn't something that where a switch just went off. I now believe that the ability to stand on a stage and speak is incredibly important. It's an incredibly important leadership skill. And I spend a lot of my time, I volunteer and help people find their voices and share their voices. Often people will say, because I was very much like this, they'll say, well, I don't have anything to say. I really don't know enough. I don't have anything to say. And I had that for a while where I was like, well, I'm not important enough. I'm not experienced enough. I don't have enough to say, but I was the one writing 
the Huffington Post, you know, ghostwriting the Huffington Post series, or I was ghostwriting, I ghostwrote a lot of speeches for executives. And I was writing the messages that were going out to the, to the company and, you know, nuance of language, a lot of different structures, you know, understanding, are you writing this for an email? Are you writing this for a speech or you whatever? And I was enjoying that, but you're right. It was protected. Part of the frustration of being a ghostwriter though, is that you don't get to deliver it. And you're sitting in the audience seeing what worked and feeling validated. Oh, okay. I thought that that would work. I thought that that would be delivered, would be something an audience would react to or seeing something be delivered delivered in a way that didn't the full power of how it could be delivered because the words are only one part of it. How you deliver it is another part of it. So, so I think I kind of went on a natural progression. Our, our CEO um, at the time had announced he was retiring and we had a hiatus before we had an interim before they hired the next one. And, and at that point I started, um, I had this website for a while called business doing good, which I blogged about how, basically what I would now call social responsibility and looking at all sorts of decisions about social responsibility, not just giving and volunteering, but starting there was for any business, any size business, not just the big ones. And so I blogged about it and then put it together into kind of like guides. And I did this for about a year and a half. And it was the first time I kind of really put something out with the support of the company under my, my own name. And I just, enjoyed doing it. I started then around that time um, being someone who was interviewed versus I wasn't doing the media relations anymore. I was becoming more of a person who would speak for the company. And I think some of that just came from my long history there, my understanding of the market. Um, I got really involved in Giving Tuesday. And so I talked to, you know, did a lot of interviews about that. And I was always very comfortable with the media and I didn't realize that I would be but a lot of people are not comfortable speaking in public. And so I got opportunities because other people, I don't think wanted them. And so that became something that I was known for, for doing. So it, it, I definitely pushed myself at certain points. You know, I was used to standing in front of an audience, you know, I could stand on a stage and do a, you know, the four minute intro I like to memorize that and not, you know, read it from a teleprompter, but I was like, you know, I need to do something more. And that's when I decided to do a TEDx talk and seek out some other opportunities to push myself out of my comfort zone. And I always tell people, if you're not a little bit nervous before you go on stage, you might not do a good job because you really, you, you want to need to do a good job and get up there and not just say it. And you want to, you want to connect with the audience because something like 80% of what you say on stage, people don't even hear. They just, it's, they want to connect with you. And right. But I well, do, I, 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 I learned that it was something that actually fed me. I do want to ask was, you about that because um, this is audio. So people can't see us, but you've got a couple of, of folks um, of a certain age who are both white. And I know you've devoted a lot of your, uh, attention and energy and advocacy to also making sure that the sector is truly representative of, of the, of the country. And, <laughs> um, and, and you've, you've definitely done that, especially where, where women are concerned at AFP and other places. The reason I'm mentioning that is that uh, when we don't see a great deal of uh, diversity on stages, or at least we haven't in the past, I wonder, um, 
what we can do to ensure that we have greater representation of of every voice in the sector and uh and i and i i wonder if maybe part of this is the kind of um encouragement you were just providing for people uh taking taking the microphone you know doing it in the ways that you've done it uh, what what is it that we need to do that you've been working so hard at doing to ensure we have greater greater representation yeah, so I am hugely um, passionate about you know what you would call DEI. I think it's a huge part of ESG. Mm-hmm. It's a huge part of social responsibility. It's just part of life. You know, I tell people I care about it because I live in the world, and you know there are lots of different people in the world. And given where we started, and you know, growing up, living and traveling in different places, you see that there are lots of different people, and the world is better because of that. Um, so I have for quite some time you know, very actively, definitely over the last 10 years, been focused on how you help other people share their voices. And those people tend to be women or uh, underrepresented minorities, Um, whether they're LGBTQ or, you know, it's someone who is African-American or, you know, comes from a different country or, or whatever. And I think we need to do this because predominantly you see people on stage because of the title or rank that they have. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're great at being on stage. And it also just gives you a limited view. So you, I think we need to have more people. We need to have more people who are young, et cetera. And that one of the easiest things to do, just like um, someone did for me as I served on different nonprofit boards, is to open the door for other people, you know, to say, well, you asked for me, but I think that you should really have this person instead or uh, you know, as I started doing more and more things, I couldn't do everything that I was invited to do. And so I would say, well, you need to have this person. They would be great. And and then help that person be great. Go and talk to them about, you know, what they could talk about and help be a sounding board and go and support them. And it's not that hard, I don't think, to open the door for other people to be what you would call a sponsor, um, you know, I always tell people, don't say no if you can't do it say, well, I can't do it, but I have someone else who can. And then formally through things like, you know, um, local TEDx where you could encourage bringing in different voices or, you know, we have uh, uh, Blackwood has a senior women's community of all the women at the company that are of a certain rank, um, director and above. And a number of years ago, I started a part of our summit where we did Ignite, short Ignite style talks just the women and people talking about whatever they wanted to talk about. And often it was very personal about being a woman in business or, you know, going through a divorce or, or whatever it was um, in this very supportive community. And the goal was for us to get to know each other better, because if you know each other better, you're going to support each other better in the community of work. Um, but also to give people the experience to step on a stage and people who might you might not ever think of putting on a stage because of the role they have within the company, um, which might not be as a spokesperson. And people talk about how meaningful it is to them and how opportunities even within the company opened up for them when other people heard them speak and heard their perspectives and heard things about them that they just didn't know because the world gets very structured about, you must be this because you focus on this area. Right. So I've spent a lot of time with my kids, you know, you know, having them understand the power of language and storytelling and community. And I think they all kind of connect. So I think 
there are opportunities all around you, whether they have to do with service or, you know, things that get you in a position where you, you can be in front of people. That it's, I don't know, I think a lot of people are, are scared to speak and it's, it, is, it can be very nerve, nerve wracking until you figure out that the audience is actually rooting for you and wants you to be good. Because if you aren't good, they have to sit, sit there and endure you. You realize they want, they want this. Like <laughs> you want, and, and don't act so formal because they don't want that. They don't want to read 7,000 things on a slide. Right. Right. You, you know, um, speaking of public speaking, you did, you made reference to this TEDx talk that you did. Yes. And, um, the title of that was what the era of corporate social responsibility is ending. And you said something in it that, that strikes me, especially now, uh, which is that by the time I retire, I think you said what I do will be archived, outdated and done and replaced by human responsibility. So I have a couple questions in there. First is, did that happen? Well, I haven't actually retired. I just, oh, sorry, I meant retired yeah, from yeah. Blackbot. I know you're very yeah, yeah. active out there in the world, but you've left yeah, Blackbot. No, no. I'm not retired. I'm, just, I, I'm moving on to my next adventure. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and so, first of all, TEDx talks are supposed to be provocative. Yes. You know, and so, you know, the full title was, you know, why, how the era is ending and why that's a good thing. And I joked that, you know, had I told my boss that this thing that they were paying me to do was, was ending and dying. And, and I really was just saying that it was changing. And I was fundamentally talking about how I didn't, I don't, and I still don't agree with the focus on this too many, on the C, the, the corporate, that it's too much, a, it's too impersonal. It, puts the focus on the needs of the corporate versus the needs of the people in the community and the companies are made up of people and you need to understand your people and your, your communities that you're trying to serve. And if you understand those, then you are helping elevate your brand. And so some of it is semantic. It's the language that's been used in throughout my career and the evolution of what it is that people call this work has just changed dramatically. It was philanthropy and then it was citizenship and then it was CSR. And, and all of those things, I think, run the risk of being too um, cordoned off, too, too put into a little bubble and, oh, that's that thing that's down the street and around the corner. It's, it's giving and volunteering. And what I have come to represent and work on is what I consider broad scale, broad reach social responsibility. So Yes, it includes programs that you might run having to do with giving and volunteering and community and social impact, but it's also the lens through which I think not just businesses, but organizations should look at the decisions they make, you know, how they hire people, how they treat people, how they develop their products, their supply chain, their commitment to the environment, their governance policies, all those things. Are you looking at the decisions you're making through the lens of being a good socially responsible citizen in the world? not separating that as something that you just kind of do over on the side. So that language has evolved um, tremendously. And that's part of what I was, you know, in my talk, I was trying to argue that, um, that the focus is wrongheaded when you just focus on by calling it this, uh, this old thing. And when you open up your mind um, and think about the people in the community, you're going to realize other things. And then I actually did another talk last year um, called ESG is for everyone that was kind of riffed off the first talk and, and very much was that ESG is this completely misunderstood thing because it's a clunky term. Right. Environment, could, could, social, we start, 
Could we start with you just defining ESG? Because sure, sure. I heard different definitions from different well, people, all of them really I mean, know their stuff. What What would you say? How would you define it? Well, for the so rest? the challenge is that it's not only defined a little bit differently by different people, but it's also misused. So ESG stands for Environment, Social, and Governance, and it comes out of um, the investment world of people looking at co companies, publicly traded companies often, and deciding if they want to invest in them. And you want to understand the risks to the business. And you look under the E for environment, S for social. So environment's pretty clear. Um, social is everything having to do with human capital, diversity, equity, inclusion, your supply chain, your community. And governance is policies, practices, board, pay, et cetera. And so you can, you know, go on the web and look up ESG and there'll be lists of things that go under the E, the S, and the G. And there are rating agencies out there in the world that will rate companies based on the data that they share publicly that fit into these buckets. Uh, and it's really important, but ESG has become used to mean stakeholder capitalism. You know, all, you know I was at a conference last year and the first session was, we're going to talk about ESG and what they talked about was remote work. And there's a subset of remote work that has to do with data that is in ESG, but it's not to me, that like that term is being used to represent what I think broad-scale social responsibility represents. So, I was arguing in ESG is for everyone that um, you know in my you know my first talk I was like you know every company every organization should be focused on doing good in the world but it's about people and community and in this talk I was saying you know every organization not just public ones should be thinking about what people are saying ESG represents is are you a good citizen in the world? Are you looking at decisions the way you would look if you cared about ESG, your impact on the environment, you know, the products you, you purchase, the car you drive, the, you know, because ESG has become weaponized and political and it, it often is around an issue, not actually what ESG data is. There's a, there's another piece to this, and when I think about that that uh, earlier TEDx talk, and then some of the other work that you've been doing, especially with things like the Generosity Commission, um, the other work you've done with uh, with the people at the at the Giving Institute, and their focus on kind of this decline in general participation by the U.S. population in in what we define as philanthropy or giving uh, mm -hmm. to not for profit organizations. And that if you, you know, if you take the end of that phrase that, uh, you know, replacing it with human responsibility, one of the ways that I heard that in my head was this is a chance for people to take action. Sure, for companies to think about the individuals rather than just their brands, as you were talking about. But it's also a chance for people to take action mm -hmm. locally, whether it's like you talked about with your your parents growing those vegetables in the back garden or serving yeah. on those boards or all those things, which obviously informed uh, your decision to work at BlackBot, because ultimately, aside from that soccer game, I'm sure you could have gotten a job somewhere else, but you went there and then you continue to work there and do all these things. But at some mm -hmm. level, it's about people making decisions. About what oh, absolutely. Doing. I mean, the the actually in the end of my the ESG is for everyone talk, I actually talk about individual action. I talk about my father growing vegetables because he believed that they should come from the ground and not the store. I talk about my son you know, who's just left for a job as a program director at a camp and conference center, learning about sustainability, you know, 
those nights under the stars when he was camping and growing up and learning about, I mean, his interest in sustainability came from that. So individual action is, is really important. And I've, I have more been in positions to talk about, to try to take the message to other organizations. And I believe that I love nonprofits and about philanthropy and nonprofits a lot, and I'm committed to that. But I think we need more and more companies to actually understand the impact that they can have on the world if they make wise decisions. They can have a broader reach and impact on some really big issues. But at the same time, you know, I don't like it when people say, well, the company should or that company should do something that's better if you're not thinking about that yourself as well. We shouldn't just leave it to the companies. Individual people, you know, collectively and how you vote and how you act and all the things you do, do make a difference. You know, sure, it's a much bigger thing when a big company makes a, uh, a change. I just was totally thrilled when I saw that Coca-Cola was creating these cardboard um, uh, things that they're going to lip put the soda cans in instead of the, rings. the plastic rings that yes the, the insidious plastic gets. rings that are awful that I carefully cut every time I but I hate it when I, I have to buy these things and now there's going to be cardboard and I'm like that's a big move because then of course the other brands are going to follow suit and that's going to make a huge impact on the world but at the same time I as a consumer can decide what I purchase what I drive you know I drive a hybrid I'm because of course I do. I work in the world of social responsibility, you know. So, so let me ask you about that. So it, it, the individual is really important to this whole thing. They're important to the decisions we make about where we work, what we do, the pressures we place inside a company to be better um, in the same way that you did by founding essentially the giving arm of BlackBot and, and growing it over time with your peers and your colleagues. Um, but then there's also the pressure that makes a company like Coca-Cola decide, you know what, we're going to stop making plastic rings, we're going to start delivering in cardboard. So how much should the onus be on individuals to put pressure on companies and other institutional actors to do the good things? You know, I would love to think that organizations would just do it anyway. And some, many do. I mean, there's been this... I don't know, false dichotomy. You know, I, I graduated from college in what I call the Gordon Gecko Greed is Good era. You know, if you've seen the movie Wall Street, Michael Douglas, you know, greed is good was his, his phrase. And, you know, if you wanted to make money and, and, you know, be successful, you went into business. And if you wanted to do good, you got an MPA or worked for a nonprofit and decided you were never going to make any money for the rest of your life. And, and now there are all of these ways you can, can, have a good income and have a, a good life and, and contribute to something that's big. But there was really this idea that business was bad and nonprofit and governments were good. And, you know, look at all of the innovations that came to us through business. I mean, I always like talk about the refrigerator, but like you needed that, that merchant store on main street, you need, I mean, we needed business as a part of society. And I think we've come back to a point where we can understand that. Um, but there's always a tension in people pushing organizations, and I like that word organizations because it's not just businesses, um, to do something faster or to step up to a decision that maybe they haven't made yet. And I think sometimes it's gotten a little extreme depending what the issue is. Companies cannot do everything that every employee wants them to do. Um, but... I think a lot of the issues are becoming more human. Like they're becoming, this is an issue of just human humanity, human rights, 
doing what's right. And, and if you say, I'm, I'm not going to address that, you're kind of opting out from it. So I think some of that pressure is, is just normal. Um, it, people do have bigger voices today, though. You know, one of the things we haven't really talked about here is the change in technology that's happened over my career. And, you know, I started in the DOS days and DOS to Windows to the cloud. And, you know, I didn't get a phone for, I don't know when I had my first phone, but now you have to have a smartphone pretty much to function in the world. And technology is a part of our daily lives. Subscription models are part of our daily lives. And, you know, that gives people access to technology gives people a voice and a broader voice than, than I've ever had before. And that can be used well and used badly. Yes. Well, you, you talked about, uh, I think you mentioned Twitter and uh, by the way, I have to say that um, I wanted to ask you why Jason Sudeikis is on your Twitter picture there, but I think I know, but can you, can you, uh, for those who don't know who he is or what that's about, uh, tell us. Yeah, and I have to say that I haven't been using Twitter much uh, for the past. I changed the picture, you know, recently, but I actually originally put that picture out on LinkedIn. Um, so I always tell people I met Ted Lasso because he was in costume. Um, my sister was an expat in London. Mm -hmm. And when my kids were about the age that I'd been when I lived in England. And so we took them to England a lot for the period of she and her husband both work in the energy business. And, and so they were over there for a number of years and we visited a lot. And my sister now has a, a little property that's in Twickenham and Twickenham is right near Richmond. And Richmond is where, of course, AFC Richmond plays the, the team on uh, Ted Lasso. Phenomenal show. So I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan, not just because I'm a soccer fan, but just because it's an amazing show. And my sister had knew that they were filming. You know, it's pretty if you go to Richmond, which is this beautiful suburb of, of London, um, it, you walk by the pub where it's the Ted Lasso pub. And you know, we were walking by and saw that they were changing the, the sign to be it's the crown and anchor and the princess head. I can't remember which one's which, but One's the real name and one's the pub's name. And watching the show, you'd say, well, that's the little alley in Richmond. And that's Richmond Green, where the girl's always dribbling the soccer ball by. And the alley where his apartment is supposed to be. It's, mm -hmm. it's very, you know exactly where it is if you've been to Richmond. And so we knew that they were filming. And we had been on Richmond Green that morning, actually meeting one of my Blackboard colleagues for coffee. And, and um at the end of the day, we'd been down in London. We came back. We said, well, let's just walk by the pub and see what's happening. And we were walking by the pub and Beard is sitting there on the bench having a beer. And, you know, just, and we're like, oh, my God, like, that's Beard. And it's not like there are 50 million people there because this is just Richmond, England. It's just like, you know, mm -hmm. average everyday uh, day. And this little van drives up and Jason Sudeikis steps out and starts talking to my husband. And <laughs> and he said, you know, would you like a selfie? And my husband actually said, uh, well, it doesn't matter to me, but I know I know two crazy middle-aged women who would love to have a selfie with you. And that would be me and my sister. <laughs> so we go over and, and he had to like make the phone work because my sister was like stressing and freaking out about it. And he was absolutely lovely, lovely. And we didn't keep him long, but I just said, you need to know that I work for a tech company and we talk about your the show all the time in management meetings. Because we do, we're like quoting, you know, like be a goldfish and all of that. And he's like... <laughs> I wish my high school English teacher knew that and, you know, walked away. But it was just this wonder, wonderful, he was lovely, very charming, beard was <laughs> charming. 
And so I post it and everyone, you know, people were saying, Rachel, I stopped a meeting to tell everyone that, that you just spent Jason's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, well, if Sam Obaswani had been there, I think I really would have flipped. But <laughs> I, what a great show! It is a great show, and and that's a a great use of Twitter in it. <laughs> you know, social media. Like so, you know, I posted it. And, you know, right. Just, like I did. I don't even think I put his name. No. I mean, didn't I put, posted it, it, and everyone's like. So the, the part of the reason I raised it here is because you were just talking about uh, technology for good or evil from the days when it sounds like neither of us had a cell phone. I used to dial in an 800 number to pick up messages on the road um, yeah, yeah. to today where everything is 24-7, 365. And uh, the problem in part, if there is one, uh, there are debates about this, is uh, the consolidation of these networks in much the way there was consolidation of broadcast or you know other kinds of print networks in the past so you have one person or one company or one voice behind something and there's now a greater degree of potential manipulation um, mm -hmm. on those platforms about what you see what you don't see um, than there used to be when I don't know somebody could post something on Twitter like a picture picture of meeting Jason Sudeikis we all had a good laugh but there seems to be a lot of stuff that keeps you know forcing itself up to the front of our feeds that then influences the community conversation, including how we want to participate and work with one another, all the things that you've been working on for the past 30 years. I'm wondering if you have a reflection, not so much on BlackBot, but on the, the way we have evolved with our um, use of technology on an individual level and how we can be maybe a little healthier about it if what we're really trying to do is to promote social good, wherever we are. The individual yeah. with the garden in the backyard, the person working at a place like BlackBot, the person who decides whether to stay or go from Twitter. How are we going to relate with technology in a way that makes this place better, safer? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm of, of that generation that has seen a, and had to adapt to a lot of change when it comes to technology. We're not native to technology. And I think that that's been helpful because we knew how you did things before and the the benefits that we achieve, got through technology and also the things that we lost. And it's wonderful that people can have voices, but that means you have to be responsible for, you know, what you say, how you say it, why you say it, when you say it. And words have great power. And, you know, I actually am this complete nerd who also believes I love punctuation. I love, I understand because I had to take all of these tests in grad school and, you know, all the details of punctuation, that punctuation used correctly actually adds meaning to the words around it. And that's so gotten lost because, and that's too bad because people would say, well, that's just punctuation. It's like, no, that's actually a layer of meaning that just evaporated. So I do think that it's wonderful, some of the things that we get through technology, but people need to understand the issues around data that everything that you do leaves a trail of data in the world. And I don't think people actually really understand the impact of that. They don't understand the implications to privacy. When you say whether an organization or your, your phone can, can submit your data to the phone provider, you can choose to say yes or no. You can go into your permissions and turn things off. You, but you have to you know, this is something we do for my dad, who's 87. We like go in and set it up for him. But there's so much that you really have to almost invest in to, to determine how much are you going to let be out there in the world. And to some degree, you got to let some of it because, I mean, we are 
we, we do live in the world. But being responsible about what you say, um, you know, my, when my kids were old enough to have Facebook pages or get involved in social, you know, I talked to them about like, people are going to know you for what you post. And you're going to need to understand this phrase that did not exist when I was in high school, which is curate your timeline. You know, how do you curate what's out there? If someone posts something on your Facebook page that you don't like, you know, you need to understand how to block people, how to remove things, because, you know, there are certain things I will never put out on social media because people hijack your, start taking it in different directions. And that's not what I want to be involved with. So there's personal responsibility. And I think that a lot of the things that journalists seek to do, the classically trained journalist, um, the pursuit of objectivity, trying to provide a fair array of sources, you know, all the things that they try to do that focus on, you know, ethical reporting is something that we really could benefit from. Many sites, you know, don't even, are not even trying to be that, but if you're not savvy, you could be consuming information that's, that isn't even pretending to be accurate let alone the impact of how, what it could have on your brand. I don't know if that all makes sense. It's, it's so complicated. I mean, it, it seems like life is so easy because we can do everything on our smartphones, but, but that's, there are a lot uh, of implications there. Yeah, there, there are. Um, and uh, in a way, I guess it sounds like you've had an incredible time at Blackbaud, which is wonderful. Uh, you done all these wonderful things through BlackBod. Um, you continue doing extraordinary things through um, organizations connected with this community. Uh, but I wonder if you feel now somewhat free also, because now every time you speak, you do speak for yourself and whatever you choose to do next, whether it's to you know, head off to England next week and see the next soccer match in Richmond or yeah. play there, or whether it's to you know go on a tent tour of in Southeast Asia, whatever you do, it's all, it's all up to you. What's, what's next yeah. for you? And do you feel more free to do it? Well, sure. I mean, some of that comes with age and stage of life. Um, I'm incredibly proud of the career that I had at Blackboard of, I'm proud of the company. I'm proud of the things that, that the company was able to do and the parts that I played in that. Um, incredible, incredible group of people, um, some really incredible advancements in technology. Um, but I think anyone who, you know, moves on after being in an organization for a long time, and I always feel like I said, I like switched my status from active to alum. I always feel connected to it, but yeah, there is a, a sense of you know, freedom of, you know, deciding what's right at this next stage of life for me. And part of that is my youngest son graduated from college. And, you know, I can, I'm in a position where I can decide what's next. And, you know, that doesn't mean I'm done. I'm, I really, really am interested in how companies can, can really actively be more of an engaged force in solving problems in the world. And, um, delivering careers with purpose and, you know, really ready at the table. Um, I think that that's important. I think um, foundations play an incredibly important role in that in terms of grant making as do nonprofits. And I love the fact that 
this idea of social impact is actually, it's something real. It's not a phrase that we even used 10 years ago. There's this great book called The Six New Rules of Business that I always talk about. Judy Samuelson wrote it and she runs the business and society segment of the Aspen Institute. And it it maps out the six old rules, which were like the capital is king and people are cost, you know, bang the table kind of rules. And, and the six new rules are about purpose and community and, and, you know, humanity. And it really maps out the change that I've seen over the past 30 years. And those new rules give me a lot of hope for how all organizations, companies included, need to be a part of whatever our future is. Because here we are in this world where, you know, we know that we're global, but hyper-local and something that happens in a, you know, country across the world can affect us and our neighbors. Like we're in a really different place. And I hope we learn something from that and use it for all these challenges that are around us. So I'm not done. I don't know the form of what next will take, but you know, that's kind of exciting. Thank you so much for this, Rachel. You are welcome. Thank you. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.